Hallelujah. Good morning. So good to be back with you today. Uh, I want to begin today by asking a question. Just show of hands. How many of you know uh, where the name Google comes from? Anybody know where the name Google comes from? There's a couple uh, of people. I'm actually shocked. Was, this was on College Jeopardy this week, and, and uh, I learned something. The, the word Google comes from the word Googleplex, meaning that's the result you get when you search Google. How many results that you will get? Googleplex is a real number. It's a real number. In fact, I'll show it to you. Googleplex is a one followed by 100 uh, zeros. What has happened? There it goes. 100 zeros. That's Googleplex uh, right there. It's a pretty big number, by the way. But, but in comparison to other numbers in the world of numbers, it's actually a really small uh, number, which begs the question, what's the biggest number there is? And, and, and if you said infinity, uh, you're wrong, right? Because you forgot about infinity plus one. And, and, but, but this is a real question, okay? I don't know why it's a real question, but this is a real question that real mathematicians ask. What's the biggest number ever? And, and in my mind, that just sounds illogical, right? Because don't numbers just keep going? Couldn't you just keep adding one and then one and then one and so on and so on and so on? But I, I'm not a mathematician, so I'll, I'll leave this uh, to this them. But one way, when, when you study this whole concept in this whole world of numbers, to get at the biggest number, I don't think you're going to get to it, but to get at the biggest number is to ask this question. What's the biggest prime number? Do you, do you remember prime? I'm not talking about Amazon prime. Do you remember when Amazon prime used to deliver in two days? You remember that? What happened to that? It's not prime anymore, right? Like it's not prime. But but prime, not like Amazon prime, prime, like a prime number. A prime number is a number that is divisible only by itself, right? So one is not one of those because, which I don't understand why one is not, but, but, but one is not, right? Two is a prime number. Three is a prime number. Five is a prime number. Four is not a prime number because two times two is four. Six is not a prime number because three times two is six. Now, now that I've taught you again, how many of you remember what a prime number is? Like we should have a hundred percent improvement in the room today, right? Well, well, what they've done as mathematicians is they've gone up and up and up and up to find the biggest prime number that there is. Do, do, do you want to see it? This is the biggest prime number that there is. That's not the number. That's the number of digits the biggest prime number has. And I can't read it to you today because it takes almost a full year to say the number. A full year. Now, let's just shrink it down to something you and I can manage in our hearts and in our minds. Let's just take the population of the world, okay? Somewhere around 8 billion people, way smaller than, than that, but 8 billion uh, people. And if you and I took on the task of counting all 8 billion people, one, two, three, four, at that pace, do, do you know how long it would take to count to 8 billion? 253 years, 248 days, 4 hours, and 48 minutes. That's three lifetimes of just counting. 
So, so there's no way that we could ever count the number of people even just on earth. Now, those of you who've been around the Bible a long time, I just want to ask you the question, does all that talk kind of sound familiar to you or ring a bell uh, in, in your mind biblically? I want to remind you about what God promised Abraham back in Genesis. We talked about this last semester, uh, chapter 13, verse 16. I will give you so many descendants that like the dust of the earth, they cannot be counted. Now, that's a really big number, right? And, and God's like, hey, go out in the uh, dark and look up at the sky and start counting the stars. You can't, right? Impossible. You can't count them. That's how many descendants you have. Now, go out and start counting the grains of sand in the desert or on the beaches. One, two, three. Just stop, right? It's impossible. You can't do that. But that's how many descendants you'll have. Now, the promise, by the way, if you've read the Bible, you know this to be true, did not come true in the span of Abraham's life, right? He died having just two kids. It didn't happen and wasn't fulfilled over the span of the entire Old Testament either. In fact, here we are today, and it's not even reached the fulfillment of that promise today. But there is this one prophecy, and there is this one vision in the book of Revelation where we get a sense of where and how that promise will one day be fulfilled. But by the way, as we look at the uh, book of Revelation in this series, uh, there are lots of numbers, right, all, all over the, the book of Revelation. Seven is one of the most prominent ones. Seven is the number of, of perfection, right? Seven uh, spirit, sevenfold spirit, right? The seven lampstands, the seven stars, the seven angels or messengers or pastors, the seven churches. Uh, ten is another one uh, found, right? There's that dragon with ten horns and a thousand is another one. Jesus is going to reign for a thousand years. Numbers are all over the place, but what do they all mean? Probably something. And it takes a whole lot of wisdom and a whole lot of study to figure them out. And we could spend just weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks going over just the numbers. But, but actually, I don't believe that we need to. Remember, the whole book of Revelation is about one person, right? It's about Jesus. It's a revelation of Jesus. So what we need to be asking while we're reading this book, the book of Revelation, is what does this tell me about Jesus? What does it tell me about Jesus? And we get a clue in the first few chapters uh, of the book of Revelation. You've got your Bible, turn to chapter 2. And, and what we're studying in this series is seven specific letters that were written to seven specific churches. And, and just so you don't misunderstand it, not only did all seven churches get the whole uh, letter, seven letters, they got the whole letter of Revelation. So all the churches got the whole letter with the goal that the whole letter would be distributed among among all of the churches and all of the people. And, and, and so even though it's written to seven specific churches, very specific messages, we're reading over their shoulder today, their message from Jesus and what it said directly to them almost 2000 years ago actually means something to us today. And, and today we're going to read about the church in Pergamum, uh, Revelation chapter Two. Now, remember the outline, okay? It's the same outline in all, all seven of the letters. You got the commendation and, and where he commends them about something, and then you get the correction. He's going to correct them about something, and then he's going to give them the counsel on how to correct it, right? And, and Jesus told them, I really love what I'm seeing in your love, and I really love what I'm seeing in your service, but you're going along with the crowd. Now, let, let, let's read it together, okay? Uh, let's read it together. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 
uh, and following. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. Now, let me, let me just say this to you, because this really should be a part of the outline. And, and all seven outlines, or all seven letters, there, there's this part where it says, this is the word from, and it gives us a, a, a tidbit of the vision that, of Jesus that happened in chapter one. You remember in week one, we looked at that vision in chapter one, and it's this multifaceted vision. Now, when these letters are, are kind of broken out, he takes one piece of each of those visions and gives it to each of the churches, right? And, and, and it is about what they're bragging about, okay? And, and uh, to, to Ephesus, he said, no, I'm the one who walks among uh, the lampstands and, and holds the stars in my hand. And, and last week, uh, he said, I'm the beginning and the last. They were bragging about being the first one. And, he's, and Jesus is like, no, 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 I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the first and the last. Pergamon bragged about holding the sword. And, he, and Jesus is saying, no, 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 I'm the one that holds the sword. Now look at what he says. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne. By the way, there's an I know that comes after the vision of Jesus in this outline every time. Do you remember in Ephesus? I know your deeds. Do you remember last week he said, I know your suffering. This week he says, I know where you live which can sound a bit scary, but that's not what he means, right? And look at what he says. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne. Now, let's just stop here because that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Where Satan has his throne. Do they live in D.C.? You know, or, or, or Vegas, or, 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 or where do they live? What, what, what does that mean? Where Satan has his throne throne. What is going on there? Now, I've read all the commentaries, okay? I just want to tell you, I've read all the commentaries on this. I have thousands, tens of thousands of books on my computer, and I've read the commentaries on this, and there is only one line that appears in all the commentaries, and here's the one line that appears in all of them. This is where they agree. Commentators are divided about this. That's what they all say. But, but, but there are some things we do know uh, uh, about Pergamon. First of all, we, we know that Pergamon was built on a big hill, okay? And it was built all around this big hill. We, we also know that, that the buildings were like terraces going up the whole hill. And in fact, we know that they looked kind of like thrones uh, as it was playing out. And Pergamon today, if you visit there in modern Turkey today, what you see is that in that city, there was a massive altar to Zeus. There was also a temple to Caesar, okay? And, and in fact, a couple of weeks ago, just coincidentally, and not even really planning it, I talked about, hey, in 2023, we may do a trip here. And lots of emails came in. And so we started a, a, a website called battlecreekchurch.com forward slash trips. If you want to communicate with us, you're thinking about going on this trip. We haven't planned it yet exactly. It's going to be May, maybe June 2023, and, and we're going to figure it out. So we want to communicate with you if you're interested in going on what trip you want to do. Because one option is to go on Paul's journeys, which would include, uh, you know, Ephesus and some of this over here. The other one would be to go to all seven of these churches, but we want to talk to you about it. But, but I think it would be discipleship. I think it would be amazing, actually, for those of us who are visual to go walk some of these places and let the scripture come alive. But, but they had an altar to Zeus and a temple to Caesar, and they worshiped multiple gods. They worshiped the emperor, and, and certainly those two places could be called the throne of, of Satan, right? But there's something else playing out here. We, we know that Pergamum was the home of the local Roman proconsul. The proconsul is basically the Supreme Court justices, and they ruled over court cases. And there's this imagery that the idea of a throne 
is not just a place of ruling, it's a place of judgment. Now, when you rewind your Bible, if you were to rewind in your Bible to Zechariah chapter 3, and you were to read that story, what you see and what you have is a scene that is taking place in heaven before the throne room of God. And in the throne room of God, Satan is there. And he is accusing the high priest, Yeshua. By the way, we get this picture in Job as well, that Satan is appearing before the throne room of God. And God says to Satan, nope, I reject your accusations. Now, Satan is acting as the accuser. That's one of his names in scripture. He's acting as the blamer. He's acting as the prosecutor, right? That's what he is. But I got to tell you, church today, don't ever let him be the judge, on your life. Don't ever give him that right to be the judge over you. He does not get to judge you. He will accuse you. Make no mistake about it. He will accuse you. He will be the prosecuting attorney. But, but watch this. He stands behind that desk in the courtroom uh, where he belongs, where the prosecuting attorney belongs, but he wanders out from behind that desk and he tries to convince you that he gets to sit up on the judge's seat. He tries to convince you and me that what he says goes. Don't let him have that seat. Don't let the accuser decide your case. Don't hand over control of your soul to someone who hates you. So, so what do you do? Reject him. Resist him is what the Bible says. Fight him. D don't let him have that role in your life. Now, now Satan's throne, we, we know that there are some things practically and physically about Pergamon that could be described as the throne of Satan. But, but let's just think through this for a second as New Testament Christians. W where is Satan's throne? It's pride. Think about that for a second. What was it that got Satan kicked out of heaven? It was pride. Those of you who want to study it this week, it's Isaiah 14. Satan made five I will statements. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will in the face of God. And those five prideful, arrogant statements got him thrown out of heaven. And here's the truth about pride. Pride always wants to be lifted up, seen, and exalted. I had a friend tell me one time that, remember, the only thing to do when you've climbed all the way to the top is jump off. Why would somebody want to be higher than other people? Think through that for a moment. From a psychological standpoint, why would one human being want to be higher than all the other people? I I'm going to tell you the answer is, is because they feel lower. This is an insecurity issue. It's a knowing who you are in Christ issue. When you are secure, then you don't need to be higher than everybody else. By the way, God uh, dealt, began to really deal with this in my heart when, when I was a college student. I was saved at 15 years old, began uh, having a few jobs in youth ministry. The first job I had in youth ministry, I was a teenager. And, and the youth pastor I was interning under uh, said, hey, you're going to speak tonight to, to the students. And I said, really? Like in an hour? He said, yeah. Uh, and I said, hey, could I just ask a favor of you? In the future, would you give me more than one hour's notice 
uh, when, I, when I'm going to speak, I'm really not equipped to do that. And, and he said, well, I'm giving you one week's notice, two weeks notice, three weeks notice, four weeks notice. You're going to speak every week. I said, you're not going to speak. He said, no, you're going to speak. And, and so I started speaking as a kid and God began to give me a little bit of favor with this. He began to give me a little bit of success with it. And people began to notice. And, and, and all of a sudden as a college student, I got to speak at all kinds of events. And, and, and as a 19-year-old, a 20-year-old, and now I'm called to ministry, full-time ministry, and I'm going to pursue this path. And, and I finished college and I'm going to go to seminary. And when I go to seminary, God says, I have the perfect position for you. And he made me the janitor of the seminary. That was my first job in seminary. I cleaned the student center of the seminary with a blue polyester shirt on that had my name on it. And they misspelled it. (laughs) Alex, there's only four letters. I'm cleaning the bathrooms. And some of you know my phobia of germs and, and, and just like I'm not into all that. My brother, like if he wanted my ice cream cone, all he had to do was lick it. I'm giving it to him. And, and so I wore multiple pairs of gloves. I would spray between every pair of gloves that I put on the disinfectant spray. And then I'd take it. I had this whole surgical procedure to take them off like I was a surgeon as the custodian at the seminary. But I cleaned the bathrooms. By the way, I, I learned for the first time in my life, the female restrooms are way worse than the male restrooms. I'd never been in the female restroom until that time where I could set the yellow thing up that said mopping and, and be aware and went in. And I'm like, holy cow, the men are pretty clean. But I was bivocational in that season. I wasn't just the janitor at the seminary. I was also the janitor at Lockheed Martin, a place that built airplanes. And one night I was in there buffing the floors late at night where nobody's there in the dean's office of the music school, the worship school, and I'm running that buffer on the floor. You would spray the stuff and then run it over and make the floor shine, you know, like the Chrysler building. And I didn't know you were supposed to let that thing finish spinning before you let go of it. And I let go of it and it just started. It wound up that cord. It took me two hours and 45 minutes to get the cord out of the bottom of that thing that wrapped up in it. But it broke things on his desk. It knocked down his wedding pictures. Him and his wife are broken on the floor. And it, it was a horrible experience. But I remember that season like it was yesterday because it was a season where God was saying to me, I want you secure in me. In me. That's where your security comes from. It's not in your performance. And I want you to learn to be secure in Jesus. And I want you to be kind to people, to all people. So, so what is it that Pergamon did in this stage? Look, look at what Pergamon did. It, it, it says, yet you have remained loyal to me. You've remained loyal to me. This is the commendation, by the way, in the outline. He's commending them. You have remained loyal uh, to me in the midst of this pagan culture. You held on to Jesus Christ. You resisted the throne of Satan. But, But it wasn't easy for them. Look at what it says. You refused to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, circle that word witness, Martyrion is is that Greek word. Witness was martyred among you there in Satan's city. Now, we don't know a lot about who Antipas was. Some scholars say he was the pastor of of the church in Pergamon. But but the word witness literally is the word, the English word martyr. 
In other words, in the New Testament vernacular, if you gave a testimony about Jesus in that city, it's very likely you would be martyred. You would die for it. And you had to make a choice. If you were going to stand up for Jesus and face persecution, if you did, you might be ridiculed. You might lose your job. You might lose your family. You might lose your life. Or will you go along with the crowd? And by the way, we're going to see some in the church were doing just that. They were going along with the crowd. Look at the next verse, verse 14. But I have a few complaints. This is the correction. Okay, if you're writing the margin of your Bible, this is where he turns the corner into the correction against you. You tolerate some. It's important to know that it's not everybody, it's some. You tolerate some among you whose teaching, that's what's the problem is their teaching, is like that of Balaam. Circle the word Balaam. We'll come back to that in a minute. Who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. Circle Balak. Whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. How did he do that? He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. Now, their problem is the exact opposite as Ephesus' problem. Remember Ephesus? And he said, you're doing all the right things, but you have lost your first love. What he's saying to Pergamon is the exact opposite. He's saying, hey, you're, you're loving, but you have lost the, the way. You have lost the doctrine. In fact, I want you to think about this like uh, a tug of war that, that, that is happening. And you, you got on, on one side, uh, truth and, and on the other side, love. And there's this tug of war that is happening in this story, but even between the two of the first three churches that we're reading about. But remember, revelation is all about who? This was not a trick question. I'm pointing at the answer. <laughs> revelation was all about who? Jesus. It's about Jesus. And when Jesus is the stake in the middle, right, that you hook this thing on, he now keeps the tension that is to be maintained between these two things, right? We know God is love, right? First John 4, 8, God is love. We know that Jesus is the truth. Remember what he said in John 14, 6, I'm the way and the truth, right? You shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. But, but, but hear me today, truth without love is judgment. It's not Jesus. Truth without love is judgment. But, but you have to hear me. Love without truth is deception. It's not helpful actually at all. But here's what we find out about Jesus is that when he is lifted up, his truth and his love come together in one package. Every single time. Now remember in Ephesus, what they were doing is overemphasizing doctrinal purity. And as a result, they had a lack of love, a lack of love for God and a lack of love for others. Here in Pergamon, there's a de-emphasis on truth and, and, and purity of doctrine. Love, love, love all the time, love, 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 which led to an assimilation in the world. Now, Remember what the call of God is on our lives, to be in the world, but not of the world. And the Christians in Pergamon withstood the external pressure to compromise against the government and against the ruling pagan religion, but they let a more subtle form of compromise in. It actually came from within. It was internal. And it was like, according to Jesus and the spirit that is speaking here, like 
Balaam, like the relationship that Balaam had with Israel in the Old Testament. Now, when you're reading your Bible, this is an invitation to move out of this chapter into another chapter and say, what is he talking about? What is the story? You remember the story of Balaam. What is the first thing you think of when you think of Balaam? The donkey, right? I mean, that's what we think of. If you, went, if you studied the Bible as a kid, you remember Balaam and the donkey. If you read the King James, it was Balaam and the, right? And, and, and so it, it was a lot like that relationship, right? And, and so you remember the story. Israel is making their way through the promised land, through the wilderness, to the promised land. Let me say it that way. Through the wilderness, to the promised land. And, and Balak was the king of a place called Moab. Moab was a, a, a town east of the Dead Sea. And, and so he's the king of a town east of the Dead Sea. He has heard about the Israelites. He's heard about the Red Sea. He's heard about the Ten Commandments. He's heard about them. They are kicking chicken for Jesus, and they're coming for you. He'd heard, right? And now here they come, a million plus of them, on the back door. They're camping out over there. And so what does the king, the king, his name is Balak. He's the king of Moab. Okay, so keep the story straight. He hired a prophet named Balaam. Balaam, by the way, many Christians think Balaam was a good guy. He's not a good guy. He's a bad guy, a very, very bad guy in the story. He's not a good prophet. He's a bad prophet. He is for hire. And he was hired by King Balak to pronounce curses on the Israelites. And every time he opens his mouth to speak a curse on the Israelites, he ends up speaking a blessing. This would make a great movie, by the way. Jim Carrey should play in this. The whole story, by the way, is found in Numbers 22 through 25. If you want to study that this week, that's a great homework assignment. Study this story because it's very interesting. Numbers 22 through 25. So when Balaam's curses didn't work, he came up with another idea and he showed King Balak how to trip up the Israelites. Are you, are you following me? Instead of cursing them, here's what he did. He had the Moabite women tempt them. That, that's what he did. And so they invited the Israelite men to their festivals where they sacrificed food uh, to idols and ate it as a form of worship. And then they had all this temple prostitution and they had sex with the men, with the Israelite men. By the way, God warned us. You remember the third giving of the Ten Commandments? The first one was verbal. The second one, he gave it to him and inscribed it, right? And he came down and found them all dancing around the golden calf. He got mad and broke it. And then God gave it to him a third time. I was reading it this week, just happened to be reading that this week and saw the warning in the third time where God said, this is going to happen. You're going to be lured in. You must take guard. You must be vigilant not to go along with this temple prostitution and this idolatry that is coming with it. So when Balaam couldn't curse them. He tempted them to sin. And here you have Jesus saying, hey, what's going on in the church at Pergamon is just like that. Now, what did he mean? The Romans, who were the neighbors, the crowd of the day, remember he said, I have this against you, you're going along with the crowd. The Romans would hold these festivals, and the Christians were invited to come along. Why? Because the Christians wanted to fit in, they followed along with the crowd, and they ended up sinning just like the Israelites did in Moab. And, and, and Satan, listen, he can try to curse you and accuse you, and God will say no, but your enemy will not stop there. What he will do next is he will try to tempt you. And it's not 
not enough for you to put your fingers in your ear and go, la, 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 I can't hear you, I can't hear you, I can't hear the devil, I can't hear you. Listen, you have to do more than that. You have to resist him in order for him to flee. You have to be on the lookout for the temptations that are all around you. That's why the prescription is to be as harmless as doves, but to be as wise as serpents. Why? Serpents are coming after you. You have to be as wise as them. And just going along with the crowd, you will be blind to all the serpents. Now, now he keeps going, and there's really a second part to the problem in verse 15. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow that same teaching. I told you two weeks ago we would talk about who the Nicolaitans are in this week, so let me just tell you a little bit about it. By the way, if you're writing in the margins of your Bible, there's two bullets that the enemy is shooting at the people of God here. Idolatry and immorality. Idolatry and immorality. So who are the Nicolaitans? The Nicolaitans uh, were a group of Christians who taught that when Jesus came, he did away with the whole law. He didn't just fulfill it, he canceled it so that you could do whatever you wanted to do. At the root of their teaching was that the body is separate from the spirit. And what is done in the spirit doesn't affect the body, and what is done in the body doesn't affect the, the, the spirit. Did I say that right? They're separate. And, and, and so he was saying in the body, do whatever you want to do. You want to eat food, sacrifice to idols? Go ahead won't affect your spirit. You want to attend an orgy? Go ahead. Why not? Everybody else is. It won't affect your spirit. And they said okay to going along with the crowd under the notion that it wouldn't hurt their faith. That's a lie. It's a lie. Of course it will damage your faith. Being friendly with the people of the world is one thing. Making friends with the world and cozying up to the culture is another thing altogether. In fact, when the lines between us and the world are so thin that they're actually invisible, it not only trips the world up, it will hurt our faith. And the enemy says, I can't curse them, and if I can't curse them, I'll corrupt them. And if I can't punish them, I'll pervert them. And the compromise, listen, the compromise is not all over the map. The compromise was in a sexual ethic. That sounds a lot like the compromise in the world today, doesn't it? What is the Spirit saying to the church? And to the bride, I hope you're already asking him, Spirit, what, what, what are you saying to me today? Let, let me dive into that. I mentioned it briefly. Let me dive into it. Two weapons. Uh, immorality. That Greek word is pornea. It's the word that becomes the root word of our word pornography. But, but it's not just pornography in our culture. That Greek word is actually a general word that applies to anything illicit. Anything. Anything that would cause the Holy Spirit to blush, what's idolatry? Idolatry is putting anything as an idol over God in your life. It could be satisfaction. It could be pleasure. It could be fame. It could be fortune. It could be kids. It could be family. It could be job. It could be anything that you put on the throne of your life, and it has become an idol for you. This sounds so similar to another New Testament teaching over in James. Look at James. You adulterers. By the way, why did he say you adulterers? Because you're married, but you're cheating. That's what an adulterer is, right? And the same way that the Spirit is saying to the church in Pergamon, you're Christian, but you are now cheating on God with the world. Look at what he says. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an 
enemy of God. An enemy of God sounds serious to me. Does it to you? In other words, we're not just disappointing our Heavenly Father. We're, not, we're, not, we're actually putting ourselves in direct opposition to our Heavenly Father. When, when, when we say, you know what, I'll just go along with the crowd. I, I, I'll go to the party that I know I shouldn't go to, right? I'll peek at the thing that I know that I shouldn't look at, right? I'll tell the joke. I'll watch the show. I'll sleep with that guy or that girl just to fit in. Jesus sounds like he's really serious about this stuff with the folks at Pergamon. He said the very thing, same thing that James said. And look at what Jesus said over in Revelation 2. Repent. Circle that word in your Bible. Repent. It means to change your mind. It means to change your ways. Repent of what? Of your sin, or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them. I made this all capital because I want you to take note of it. A lot of New Testament teachers find these letters to be just harsh. I actually read them and find them to be very gracious to the bride and to the body of Christ. There's grace all over them. And who is it that he's going to come and fight? It's not his bride. It's them. It's the ones coming after his bride. This sounds very similar to what David said in Psalm 23. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. How do the rod and the staff comfort the lamb? Why? Because the rod and the staff are for the wolves. They're not for the lamb. Are you following? And how is he going to come against them? He's going to come against them with the sword of his mouth. What's the sword of his mouth? He's saying, I will fight them with the very word of God. I will stand them against the word of God. The sword of Jesus' mouth is the word of God. And Hebrews tells us that it is a two-edged sword. How is it two-edged? It both hurts and then heals. That's what it does. It hurts and then it heals. Remember Balaam, not a good guy. Do you remember what caused that donkey to stop in its tracks? The donkey saw an angel with what? A sword drawn. And Balaam tried to speak curses with his words on Israel, but all he could get out was blessing. By the way, that's a one-edged sword. All he could get out was blessing. But God's word is a two-edged sword. There are blessings, yes, wonderful blessings all through it. But if you think of God's word as a precious moments calendar, you've missed half the story. Because there are lines that God draws. And when we cross them, we, we take ourselves out from under the protection of God. And according to the scripture, we place ourselves directly in the path of the enemy's attack. And the desire to be part of the crowd, hear me, it's actually rooted in God. He wired that in us. That's not some foreign desire that we have to be a part of the crowd. God wired that in us. It's just not this crowd that we're, we're, we're wired to want to be with. It's a crowd, quite honestly, that most of us have not studied at all. That, that We should want to be a part of the crowd. We've just set our sights way too low, uh, biblically, from who we should be aspiring to be in with. There is a worship service that is coming for the children of God that will be like none of other. And it's not just a church service. It is a party. The marriage supper of the lamb will be the greatest party ever, 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 ever. And that desire that we have to be around others, great. But, But what crowd? This goes back to the whole idea I began with, with numbers and counting. Remember God told Abraham, count the sands. Go ahead, count the sands. And he can't, right? 
That's God's crowd. You can't count it. If you jump over a few chapters from Revelation 2 to Revelation 7, it gets really, really interesting uh, there. And, and John is still up in heaven receiving this one vision, multifaceted vision, and he's in heaven and, and he, he's still seeing it. Let, let me show you. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count. From where? From every nation and every tribe, from every people and every language. What were they doing? They were standing before the throne before the Lamb of God. In other words, it's not just Jews, it's not just Romans, it's not just Americans. It's God's people are all people. And it's very diverse, by the way. God's people are very, very diverse. And they're all gathered around. And look at what he says. And they were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. The white robes symbolize the righteousness of God. Why? Because they have been washed in the blood of Jesus. The palm branches. What is that? That's a callback. That's a callback to Jesus' triumphant entry on Palm Sunday. Do you remember that? Just a few days before they crucified him, they're all waving the palm branches saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And they're bowing before him as he's making his way down that path. They're worshiping him. That was a precursor to what we're going to see one day. By the way, that's my favorite day in Israel is that walk down Palm Sunday path. We drive that bus up onto the Mount of Olives and we stand way up there at the top and we look out across that Kidron Valley at the Temple Mount that now has a, a, a mosque and a, on it. And a graveyard. And as we make our way down that path, we, we think about that moment where Jesus wept over Jerusalem and said, oh, I would gather you like a hen does. It's chicks but you would not and there's a worship center we stopped back called Domius Flavius it's the dome of the tears the, the, the top of it looks like a teardrop and, and the Italian architects built that church because they, they, they believe that's where Jesus wept over Jerusalem and then we make our way into the garden of Gethsemane the garden of Gethsemane where Jesus got on his knees and prayed and began to sweat drops like blood and, and, and then we walk on down and we usually find ourselves in an olive grove in the, in the Mount of Olives and at the very bottom there's usually a, a Jewish boy selling these flutes of David, and he's playing these flutes of David, and as childish as it is, it, it actually seems a bit worshipful in that moment. It's my favorite day. By the way, I just read just 10 minutes ago in the Jerusalem Post in between these services, I've been preaching longer than 10 minutes, 30 minutes ago, I, I read in, in, in the Jerusalem Post that Israel has, in March 1, will drop the COVID vaccination requirement to go in. March 1, they'll drop it. So those of you who weren't going to go with me in last year because of that, you can go with me in October. And there's something discipleship-oriented in this culture about you walking that. But when you get to Revelation and they talk about white robes and palm branches and all of this going on, it's a callback to that just to say, hey, that was just a precursor, right? What's happening in this day is they are shouting with a great roar. What are they shouting? Salvation, 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 salvation. It comes from none other than from God who sits on the throne. And in case you're wondering, the land. And this is the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. And when he blessed Abraham and he said, hey, I'm going to make you a great nation. He was not just talking about the nation of Israel. He was not just talking about the 12 tribes. He was not just talking about the religion of Judaism. He was talking about this. And he's talking about millions and millions and billions and billions. So big that you cannot count them. And you know what they're all doing? Worshiping Jesus. 
And Satan wants you to think you're all alone in standing for Christ. He wants you to think that you're the only one who's not going with the crowd and is bowing your knee before the Lord. No one's really following God. So why not follow the crowd? Everybody else is doing it. You remember when Elijah was having his pity party? We'll talk about him again next week. But you remember he was having his pity party saying to God, I'm the only one. And God reminded him of the thousands and thousands who had not bent their knee to Baal. Hebrews 12 in the New Testament tells us that you and I today are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. They are surrounding us, watching us in the grandstands. It is a lie that you are all alone. In fact, a few chapters before Hebrews 12 and Hebrews 10, uh, he says, hey, do not neglect the assembling together. Do not neglect it. As some are in the habit of doing, don't neglect the assembling together. He goes on to say, and let us consider how we may provoke one another onto good works. That's why it's so incredibly important for us to be together. Can I just say to you, as a kid, I grew up in church where we went to Sunday school, then we went to church, big church. Then, then we came back a few hours later for youth choir. I couldn't sing, but they, they made me the president of the youth choir and gave me all the speaking roles. I never got to sing a lick. And then we went to Sunday night church. And then we came back on Wednesday night. And there was a night in between there somewhere where we would go on visitation. We would go knock on people's doors. And I remember, quite honestly, coming up through that, running from that, actually. Running from it. I ran from it in the same way that I ran from religion and Catholicism. But as a pastor today that is trying to lead a church in this culture, I should be honest with you. I, I, I feel like we need to be together more than once a week. In this culture. I, I, I feel like in order to fight the stream that we're fighting today, that we actually need to be together more than once a week. We need it. We certainly need it more than twice a month, like some of you are in the habit of doing. We actually have church every Sunday. I don't know if you knew that, but we do. <laughs> and every single Sunday, it's different from the Sunday before. And the amazing thing about this church is it just keeps getting better. That's why you need a community group. You gotta have a group that you sit in a circle with and you pray together and you look at the word and you provoke one another. I'm the only provoker in this room, right? You need a place where you're all provokers and you're provoking one another on the good works. And if you can't figure out how to get plugged in, go through our advanced track. Do it. We're, March is coming. We'll, we'll have a whole new advanced track. At this campus, it's every Sunday, all four Sundays of every month, and, and you just go for one hour at 11. At the other campuses, it's different. Sometimes they do it at one, on Wednesday night or Sunday night. Ask your campus pastor. If you can't figure out how to get in, get, go to the advanced track, and we'll teach you how to get in. But you need to know some people who are worshiping Jesus just like you're worshiping Jesus, who believe in Jesus just like you believe in, in, in Jesus. Loneliness is a vicious cycle. It's vicious. And the enemy will convince you're all alone. And when, you, when you're convinced that you're all alone, what you do is you isolate yourself. And that isolation actually makes you feel lonelier. 
And so what do you do in that moment? You build bigger walls. But when you meet others who, who love Jesus and will encourage you, you, you find out you're not alone. And in that moment, you find out it's easier to resist Satan. It's easier to say no to the things that entice you and drag you away. It's easier uh, to, to not be friends with the world when you actually have friends who love God. Satan wants you discouraged. And he wants you to throw in the towel. He wants you to go along with the crowd, but there is a greater crowd that is following Jesus. And it may not be greater in number, but it is greater in influence. Listen to what he goes on to say, back to Revelation 2. Anyone with ears to hear? I hope you're praying, give me ears to hear. Give me ears to hear, Spirit, what you are saying to me. Open my heart that I may understand what it is that you're saying. What he's saying to the churches and to everyone who's victorious, you have to stop here because, right, you got to define the win. All the time with the staff, I'm asking, what's the win here? Mike looks at me all the time because I know what question you're going to ask. I said, what problem are you trying to solve? Why why do I need to know the answer to that? Because I got to know what the win is. He's so gracious here to tell us what the win is to those who are victorious. Let's keep reading. I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. And I will give to each one a white stone and on the stone will be engraved a new name. Do you know you're getting a new name? That principle is all through scripture. And if you've lost a loved one who knew Jesus, do you know they have a name you don't know? That their heavenly father has given them as a secret? That no one understands except for the one who who receives it. Now, what what is this? This manna, that's a callback to what? To the Exodus. It's a callback to to the Old Testament. Do you remember manna? It would show up every day. Do you know that the word manna in Hebrew, do you know what it means in English? It means, what is it? That that first morning they walked out and said, manna. What is it? We don't even, to this day, we don't know what it is. But we know that it's some sort of heavenly bread. What, what is that a representation of? It's a representation of Jesus. The more you walk with Jesus, the more you love Jesus, the more you knew Jesus, what do you end up saying? Who is he? Who is he that I cannot know him? I just Every day is something new about him. I, he's more to me today than he was five years ago. But you know what? He will be infinitely more to me five years from now than he is today. That's Jesus. What is it? And who is he? He, He's Jesus. He is the I am. And whatever you need, that's what he is. And you know what he wants for you? He wants to come to you daily with fresh bread for today. For today. Do you know that Jesus in John 6 declared about himself, I am the bread of life. Daily he wants to come to you with fresh bread. I, I personally believe that the manna that he's talking about, and and there is a physical manna. The Old Testament makes that clear. That was in a gold pot that was held in the ark that one day we'll see in heaven, and he'll explain to us, what is it? But I think this manna that has been hidden, that he gives to those who are victorious and not going with the crowd, with an ear to hear and a heart to understand what it is that the Spirit of God is saying, I think that hidden manna is, is, is that he's promising there is that when you and I are reading our Bible and it jumps off the page to us for today. I think that's what that is. 
See, some of you, you've been given the assignment, you should read your Bible, you should read your Bible, you should read your Bible. And it feels like a homework assignment and you don't actually enjoy it. It's because you've never been at this place. Manna. Where it's not just black ink on white pages, but it's actually the word of God in your life for today. And he is writing a love letter to you and he is speaking to you and you're reading it and you know there's a context from a long time ago, but the context from a long time ago doesn't even matter in that moment because the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and it's no longer just the logos, the word of God. It has now become the rhema, a specific word from the logos for your life today. And it was as if you were reading the Bible and all of a sudden the Bible started reading you. Manna. Manna. Hidden manna. The white stone. What, what, what is the white stone? All the commentators agree that all the commentators are divided on this one too. So some say that that white stone is how you were invited to a Roman exclusive party. That they would take a piece of white marble and they would engrave your name in it. They didn't have paper. That This was an invitation to an exclusive party. They would see you receive this white stone and you would be so honored to receive that white stone. That makes perfect sense in this culture, doesn't it? He's talking to those who feel left out because they're not going along with the crowd. And he's saying, no, 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 you're going to be invited with a white stone to the party of all parties of all parties. Uh, uh, other scholars say the white stones were used in the court of law by jurors to indicate their vote acquittal. 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 Think about that. Th th think about that. That is victory that you and I are acquitted and declared not guilty by the Son of God. Quit it. Manna and white stones to those who are victorious. It's a promise. I've been trying to think about how to tie a bow on this for weeks, actually. And this morning, God gave me the, the bow. Sometimes he's not early. But he's on time. Yesterday, I took my son a senior in high school to an invitational track meet at the University of Oklahoma. And it's invitational in that they invite the best teams from Oklahoma, Kansas, Missouri, Arkansas, and Texas. And uh, OU doesn't care about track. It's unbelievable, actually, that that football field is right next to this indoor track field that this is like deplorable. I'm embarrassed for OU with this indoor track. So, they need to do better. And, and we're in this indoor track meet with all these kids who have gathered from four or five states. And Ben is running, the coach is playing with all the events and trying the kids in different events. And, and he, he ran him in the open 400. And, and with the 800 is really his race. And he ran him in the four by four, two events. And in the open 400, and, and there's this thing that happens. I, I ran track as a kid and I remember it. I remember it. I've been telling Ben since the ninth grade, there comes a day where you get your senior body that you have the heart of a, of a runner. And in eighth grade, he dominated every meet. And then in ninth grade, you're running against grown men who have beards. And so it's a couple of years of real punishment and embarrassment. But there will come a day where you will look up and go, oh, senior body, I'm strong. 
and I'm fast. And it's happening in the last few weeks for him. And, and in the four by four against the best of the best from about five states, it's a 200 meter track. He, he, in that back 100, he was in fourth and he kicked it into gear. I've never seen him run that fast. He looked like Dash in The Incredible. And he goes running around fourth place. He's now in third place. He's making a move for second. And they turn that corner 50 meters. It's only 200 meter track, 50 meters from the finish line. He tries to weave between number two and number one to take it. And he was on pace to set a record in Oklahoma. And the three of them got tangled up. And he went sliding on that track from here to that microphone and gashed his elbow up. He's covered in road rash. I mean, he's bleeding everywhere. His, his spandex shorts, you know, which I find very inappropriate, are all torn, and he ate it. And I went over to him and helped him up. Do you know what didn't happen in that moment? Is a level of disappointment did not happen in that moment. I said, how are you? You okay? And he was angry. And, and uh, I took him to the trainer's room. And she wouldn't work on him and clean him up because she's the college trainer and she wasn't working the high school meet. So she gave me the gauze and the saline and the, all of that stuff. And so I'm wiping blood off of his whole body, trying to bandage it up. And uh, I, I just said to him, hey, son, you need to pop off in the 4 by 4 What you're feeling right now needs to come out. And can I just tell you at the end of the race, in the 4 by 4 they set a school record, a school who's won state many, many, many times. They set a school record, and his leg was the fastest leg in the 4 by 4 And I sat him down afterwards, and I just said, hey, you get knocked down, and you get up again, right? And this morning as I was praying about it, I felt like the Holy Spirit said to me, this is the bow. When you fall down, Alex, I'm just like you were to your son with you. I'm not pointing out your disapp my disappointment in you. I am drawn to you. Every time you draw near to me, I am drawn to you. I come running. I have the gauze and the saline and the bandages, and, and I know what to do. In that moment, I'm not turning my back on you. I, I want to know what it is that has hurt you. I want to take it out of your life. In fact, you know what I said to Ben in that moment? I said, let's go find him. Because Ben thinks he threw an elbow. And I don't know if he did or not, and I'm okay with it because I would have thrown an elbow if I were in his spot. But I'm not disappointed in my son in this moment. Do you follow what I'm saying? I, I, I want to help him get back up and take the next step. And, and when the Holy Spirit comes to you and says, immorality, repent. When he comes to you and says, that's idolatry, repent. Acts says it this way. May we move towards repentance that we may end up in moments of refreshing. We dread repentance. The Holy Spirit looks forward to it because it leads to moments of refreshment in our lives. We repent so that we can refresh. Let's pray together. Every head bowed, every eye closed, every heart open. We tie a bow on this by asking this question, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? What, what, what are you saying to me? We, we know part of what he's saying is repent. We've already read the scripture, right? 
Repent means change your mind and change your ways. Here's the question that you asked the Holy Spirit today. Is, Is there any immorality? Anything that flirts with illicit in my life that I have let into the temple of the Holy Spirit? Repent. Is there any idolatry that you need to repent of? Anything you're chasing more than you're chasing your Heavenly Father? Anything that you're bowing down to that you need to repent of? Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Ask Him to speak to you. Holy Spirit, is there any immorality that I need to repent of? Is there any idolatry that I need to repent of. And today, by the way, is the day to repent. It's the day to change your mind. It's the day to to change your ways and return to the purity of the gospel. And if God is speaking to your heart something, I want to give you an opportunity to move. Would you stand together at every campus? Would you stand together, heads still bowed, eyes still closed? campus pastors come to the stage if you would at this time I don't want to embarrass anybody but I, I just as just as just to so I sense what's happening in the room nobody looking except for me and the campus pastors if you'd say pastor the Holy Spirit is speaking something to my heart would you raise your hand he's speaking to me he's sharing something with me by the way don't consider that a, a harsh thing you, you consider that the discipline of a father that he's sharing some idolatry, he's sharing some immorality to every campus. Just, just slip your hands up. What, he's speaking to me. Okay, you, you can put him down. Can, can I just say to you for the record, he's been speaking to my heart all week long as I've been getting ready to preach this. There are things that he has said to me, that, son, there's some of these shows that you're watching on Netflix They're good shows, great character development, but there are things that are not for you. I've been repenting all week. If he's speaking to you about something, I want to open the altar at every campus for you to come and just get on your knees before the Lord. It's going to require an ounce of confession by stepping out and just saying the Holy Spirit's speaking to me. But let me tell you what that confession is. That confession is it's your father's not done with you. And he cares about you and he wants to clean the house that it may lead to a day of refreshing for you. And by the way, if he spoke to you something and you're thinking in this moment, but I'm not going, I want to remind you the throne of Satan is pride. Push that pride down and bow your knee before your heavenly father today. Get rid of that pride. That's not for you. That's being thrown at you. And just come get on your face before the Lord and repent. Change your mind and change your ways. At every campus, the musicians are going to come and begin playing. God is speaking. The altar is open. Just come get on your knees. Just come on. Just say, excuse me, step out and come right now. And let's get on our face before the Lord across all of our campuses today. As the Spirit speaks, let's move. Come on. Let's move, church. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on.